Welcome to The Savvy Founder, the one place for entrepreneurs and business owners, away from the everyday bustle, where we help you find your path to a profitable and bright future. Now here's your host, The Savvy Founder and armchair sociologist himself, Philip Topham. Hello and welcome to The Savvy Founder. I'm your host, Philip Topham. I am really happy to have Neil Shaw here in the virtual Zoom studio. How are you doing, Neil? Thanks, Beth. I'm really glad to be here. Doing really well. I'm excited to chat a little bit about what it means. I don't know if I'm a savvy founder, but I'm hoping that I could contribute something to this conversation. (laughs) Absolutely. Everybody that's willing to go on the entrepreneurial journey and risk everything to build a business uh, is in that life's lessons and on that journey, I think of uh, entrepreneurship as just like a career. You can start out as a apprentice, a journeyman, a master. There's no school for it except going out and doing it. You can learn a lot along the way. So I'm I'm sure you've had some life lessons, and we'll we'll talk about that. That's right. So for the for the audience, why don't we start with who is Neil? Absolutely. So I I can run through. I mean. I think that question may have many answers depending on who you ask, but I'll go through just my background really quickly. Um, so I am a tech entrepreneur and a programmer and, uh, you know, and I have been for most of my career. Um, I won't bore you with all the details, but I'll just give you some highlights. My career started, I started a nonprofit um, right out of college, actually during college called Social Impact 360, where we were uh, building a social entrepreneurship fellowship for college students who wanted to uh, build some business in a way that made the world a better place. Um, there's a whole series of stories that I could tell about this, but the short version is we ended up uh, building the program and receiving funding from the Kenneth Cole Foundation right when I was graduating. And I chose between a programming job at Google and this sort of completely crazy idea of building this nonprofit fellowship for entrepreneurship. And after a lot of thought, uh, I jumped into the entrepreneurial path and I really haven't looked back since. My whole life has been a series of just sort of winding, crazy entrepreneurial uh, steps. So I did that for a while. I joined a startup called Everfy, which was an ed tech startup here in DC. And I joined as one of their first product managers. Um, and I helped to grow and manage their product team um, from, uh, from uh, 20, I guess it was 2011 to 2014. I left that, I started a company called Aspire, which is an HR technology company. Um, And then we sold that in 2017. And now I work on a company that helps early stage startups uh, build uh, the first, second or third version of the software that they're trying to create. So my whole career has sort of been this like, like you said, entrepreneurship is not a moment in time. It's a career path, right? And so much of it is like learning what you, um, you know, did wrong the last time around, what you did right the last time around and kind of you know, growing yeah. into that, into that experience. Um, yeah. My, uh, yeah. So that, that's me. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, it, you know, that's where, you know, I have the, the path for the savvy founder and I have that path um, as part of the logo and you'll notice the path has little guide rails on it. Love and that. that's where I think of the entrepreneurial journey. You're, you're going into the yonder and if you can put some guide rails on it, then you're a little bit more focused. And let's start with, though, that social impact organization that you built. The, 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 did I get it right? Enterprise 360 or uh, Social Impact 360. Social Impact 360. How did that 
you were doing that while still in school and, and building that. And how did that uh, come about? Because you said you were having to make that choice between yeah. Google or go on this crazy route. What, what was going through your mind at that time? Yeah. So um, I'll tell you how this thing got started. And I think it gives color to, to how I decided to jump into it. So um, I, I joined, I went to Georgetown University. I graduated in 2010. So I joined Georgetown with the intention of being an entrepreneur. So I joined, I actually joined, I did the music program and I did the marketing and management program at Georgetown. Um, and I was just, I didn't really know where I was going to go, what I was going to study, but I joined originally and I was like, I'm going to be an entrepreneur. That's what I want to do. My father's an entrepreneur. So I went to Georgetown, like bright eyed, super excited. And I said, I am going to become an entrepreneur. Let me, let me major in entrepreneurship. And they said, well, you should have done your research. We don't have an entrepreneurship program. And I was like, I'll design a major in entrepreneurship. And they're like, we don't allow you to do that. You should have read the fine print before you came here. And I was like, oh, shoot. Now I have to go and, and study, you know, different, different things at school. But I thought to myself, what would an entrepreneur do? They would build their own program. So I reached out to every entrepreneur that I could get the email address of in D.C., about 260 people. And I asked them, if you were in college, what do you wish you would have learned when you were starting your entrepreneurial journey? And me and a couple of friends kind of went through this sort of project, right? And we heard back from all sorts of people in all walks of life. And they said, you know, things like, I wish I would have learned finances. I wish I would have learned taxes. I wish I would have learned how to better control my emotions. I wish I would have understood more what makes me happy, you know? And so we sort of like built this kind of list of things that we should teach ourselves while we're in college. And we turned it into a program. And that program, we invited the people who responded with certain things to come and teach a course at Georgetown. And we had a group of probably 20 of us who sat and listened to these really smart people uh, discuss what they wish they would have learned when they were our age. And so that program became yeah. formalized and that program is what we ended up kind of like growing. And it was, it, that was my education, right? Like Georgetown was amazing and great, but that's where I sort of learned a lot of the things that I was right, doing. Right. So, um, yeah, jumping into that was sort of, it, it just, it just, it was the right thing to do. And it definitely felt like the, the path that I wanted to be on. So yeah, you, you, you stated something that has been a question of mine and that is, is entrepreneurship learned or, in red, and you said that your father was an entrepreneur. And so, what type of entrepreneur was he? Yeah, so he, well, first of all, I'll say, so my father is an immigrant. My father came over from India um, in, uh, in the 80s. I was born here, but I was born here just after my father came over. And I think immigration, emigration is like one of the most entrepreneurial things you can do, especially at that time. You know, you sort of give your entire life up so that you can move to an entirely new language, culture, you know. And if you think of entrepreneurship as sort of utilizing resources to make something happen, um, maybe under-resourced, underutilized, then uh, then then immigration definitely falls in that category. But my dad is also a more you know traditional entrepreneur in the sense he he runs an LED sign business, and my mother is a dentist, and my dad runs her dental office, and so they're both small businesses. Um, and but growing up, you know, around the dinner table we would always talk about their businesses. They both worked together. So my mom was the dentist and my dad ran the, the practice. And then my dad also worked in this engineering thing on the side. And it was just like a very interesting dynamic where growing yep. up our dinner table conversation, you know, revolved around this topic. So I, I don't really know if it's like made or learned. And, you know, I'm sure it's the same thing with the nature versus nurture, you know, thing around. Raising. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's one of those things that I, I say that you, 
you don't realize at the dinner table how much you sort of pick up by osmosis, right? So neither of your parents were W-2, right? They didn't work for the man. They didn't work for a Google. They didn't work for an Amazon or even the local grocery store. They had their own business. Right. And and so that's, I think that has a big impact um, in in the way the entrepreneurship journey goes, because you probably saw the good times and the bad times in their business. Absolutely. Right. And so you knew what you were in for. Uh, and I think that's a, 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 makes a huge difference yeah. for people. I, one observation it, on that, yeah. I do think a really interesting uh, thing that happens is, you know, as, especially as entrepreneurship becomes more and more mainstream and more people are exposed to this in their youth, the thing that's really like captured, I think, when you talk to an entrepreneur at an early age is the idea of freedom and the idea of having control over your own schedule. And that was something that I felt a lot with my father. He showed up at like every band practice, every soccer practice I had, everything, because, you know, he was always working, but he was always working on his own terms. And I right. think seeing that and seeing an example of that was just really inspiring as a kid. And it was just very clear that that's the type of lifestyle I wanted to have. And entrepreneurship was the means to be able to make that happen. Yeah, that's a great observation. It, it, so much of the new discourse with uh, big companies and such is that freedom, right? I want to yeah. be what I can be. And, and right now we've seen the big, the big fang companies, the, the Facebook, Apple, Amazon, uh, Netflix, and Google alphabet, I guess uh, in that list, they put you in a little box. Yeah. And if you want to run the rat race there, you can do really well. Uh, but you're in their little maze and you don't have the freedom to do whatever you want and take on this projects you ever want. So I really appreciate that. Now, after the, uh, that social impact company, you did ed tech and a product manager. So how did you decide to, you know, did you, uh, did you, did the first enterprise shut down? What was the exit there? No, so it, it actually, the first enterprise, uh, I served on the board on for, for 15 years after that. So I continued up until this year, actually, I've been, I've been working on that. Um, that organization grew. Um, it, we hired a new executive director. There was definitely a point where I was uh, too inexperienced to be able to run the organization at the state that it was at. And I think everyone, you know, maybe not as much me, but definitely everyone around me sort of realized that. And so we had a tough series of conversations where, um, our founding team ended up moving to the board and we ended up hiring a much more talented executive director to take over for us. And there's a whole story and lessons learned in that. Um, but um, so after that, I, I have been a programmer and I sort of worked in, in tech for, uh, for a hobby for most of my life. And that was a lot of what I did um, you know, when I was in college was I, I did websites for random people to pay for, you know, uh, for, for things. And so I joined this company, Everfy, um, introduction of a friend of a friend, um, as, and their, their whole platform was that they were building effectively video games for the classroom or educational, you know, interactive internet in educational content for, for, for K right. through 12. And it was focused primarily on financial literacy. And I've always been interested in this intersection between social impact and technology. And so it felt like the perfect fit. And, and once I joined, I realized it really was, it was just a really great you know, I joined right before they raised their series B and they, or no, sorry, series A. And they kind of went through this period where they were in this, you know, super fast growing mode. And one of the things you don't really get to see a lot of the entrepreneurial literature that's out there, you know, talking about the entrepreneurial journey, it sort of is very, very early stage or it's very, very late stage, right? It's kind of like what you do at the very beginning of your journey. And then what you do, you know, as you sort of like make a company work. 
And this was an education in kind of the middle ground, right? It was like, what happens when a company goes from the tail end of their idea stage all the way up through growth mode? And I was just, you know, I got to see and observe all this stuff. It was, it was really cool. And a lot of lessons learned there as well. All right. So you're, we were talking about the, the growth phase and that so few people talk about that growth phase. And one of the things I've seen, I'd like to get your thoughts on it, is the company has been struggling with, uh, companies generally struggle with bootstrapping, they don't have any money, and they finally get that person that says, yes, here's your round A. And it's like this, let's go get a party, woohoo, we're, we're done. And then the next morning, it's like, oh, we got to do stuff. Yeah. It, but also now, things that could have been, that would have been really questioned before, like, do we do this or do we do that? They now have the money to do both. Yeah. And so what did you find? It, did, how, did, how did that company navigate that extra influx of money? What did you see? Yeah. Um, I mean, I actually think they did fairly well at that, but I will say your point is a really good one. I do think that like, you know, sort of fast forwarding a little bit in terms of the story. So currently the company that I work on coaches a lot of early stage entrepreneurs. And we have this framework that I think is useful where we, you know, every startup is an experiment fundamentally, right? Like what you were yeah, doing, absolutely. every app, every, everything that you're building is a, is an experiment. And you can sort of say that an experiment is a justification for crazy behavior, right? Like a lot of people are like, oh, we're just experimenting. So we're going to throw this launch party or we're going to try this thing. But the thing that makes an experiment work is effective experimental design, right? So yes, the idea yes. of creating a strong hypothesis, a strong set of controls, a strong set of variables, or another way of saying it is in order for your business to work, these 10 things must be true. What do you know are true? And what do you not know is true? And based on that, you can kind of figure out where your strategy sh should go. Everify was very good, I think, at sort of like experimenting and you know, knowing what their hypotheses were, like what the things were that they had to prove. And so because of that, we had these guiding heuristics that sort of led us down this path. And it's been something that I've carried with me since is like this idea that like, you know, you, you do have to prove certain things true to investors, to clients, to yourself, right? To be able to continue working on something. And those become your guiding light. Um, and so I think if you don't have that, it's really easy to get distracted and go down the path. And like, we've all done it, you know, including uh, Everfi, including us, including everyone, right? But I think the stronger you are at designing the framework around your experiment, the more likely you are to be able to stay on that path as you need to. Yeah, I, I liken it to the new buzzword around mindfulness. Like we have this personal mild, mindfulness, you know, what are we intending to do as a person? But I also think it's one of this entrepreneurial company mindfulness. Like what's our purpose? What are we doing? And where are we spending our time? Uh, is this the right experiment to be doing, right? That's, that's and are we doing the experiment at the right phase of our of our existence, you know, trying to do uh, maybe joint ventures before you've even proven the product works and yeah. people want it might be a little, you know, getting the, the cart ahead of the horse. Yeah, absolutely. So it's a wonderful framework. And maybe we'll talk about that in a little bit more. And then you created uh, the next venture was Aspire. Yep. Uh, what was that exactly? So we were an employee benefits platform. And so we provided both traditional and non-traditional employee benefits to, uh, to companies, both large and small, but our, our sweet spot tended to be companies that were between 50 and 300 people. Um, and so we worked, we worked with some really big brands. So we worked with Uber and Geico and Northwestern Mutual, um, you know, programs that were trying to roll out either city by city or department by department um, employee benefits programs. 
but then we worked with a lot of early stage startups. So um, we worked with Carbonite um, as like a big security provider up in Boston we worked with. But so it was this cool platform where we would go through, we would survey employees on what they were looking for at the workplace. And then we would provide the employer both that data on what was working and what wasn't, but then also the ability to differentiate their spend across their workplace. And the big value proposition to our customers was that we could determine what was tax deductible and what wasn't and what qualified for reinsurance uh, re reimbursement and what didn't. So we could say by doing these six things, you can qualify for this. And it connected to the payroll and it connected to sort of the tax systems of the clients that we worked with. We hit the market at the right time. We, we joined an accelerator program um, and Pretty soon afterwards, we raised our seed round um, and be signed on a bunch of really early stage so, clients. So, what do you, so for the audience, what do you mean you hit the market at the right time? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think it's funny with all this stuff. Like, you know, that even I, I do a little bit of angel investing now, and like so much of what makes a early stage startup work is the environment in which you launch it in. And it's, it's really hard to calculate that. It's, it's honestly like a lot of like happenstance and circumstance that surrounds it. So, for us, we, I think there was a, there was a particular moment in time where companies were starting to focus on HR. I think it was fueled by this company called Zenefits, which was a big HR tech provider, sort of a Silicon Valley darling at a certain point in time that had just raised a round of funding and kind of fueled this new space. And all of these were not things that we thought of when we were working on this idea. We actually piloted the software at EverFi, and that's how we decided to, to launch it. And it was just like a moment in time that happened to work out. But we found that we were able to get, you know, access to clients or sort of, you know, uh, a non-competitive space uh, quicker than we thought we were going to be able to. Um, and it's funny because like, I mean, right now we're in a moment uh, uh, in the United States where there's a lot of cash on hand for a company, you know, because we thought we were going to crash during the pandemic and we didn't. And so we have a lot of investors have access to money. So launching a startup right now at this moment in time is a really great time to be raising really early stage capital. But like that is circumstantial, you know, it's like a very, very sort of like, yeah, you know. yeah. So, so I, I liken that to two factors. One is the sort of the, the environmental cash, you know, attitude of people. And the other is this, uh, envelope of innovation. So innovation is the adoption of change. And suddenly people become aware that there's something new out there. They, they know that's the next edge, right? And whatever that edge is, the general people, people talk, there's the edge, right? We're all talking about EVs, electric vehicles will be here. Uh, you know, 10 years ago when EVs were being talked about, Everybody's gone, ah, the you know, the muscle car and the big engine will last forever. Yeah. Petroleum industry will will rule the world. And we're finally seeing that sort of that breakthrough where there's now this new wave of clean tech and green tech all just moving through the market. And that was that was an absurd idea 10 years ago. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I do think there's definitely that circumstantial stuff. And I do think a really good entrepreneur, and I think even more so a really good investor, is really good at sort of pattern recognition and being able to connect those dots, you know, like your logo and the Savvy Founder thing. <laughs> um, but I think that that sort of thing is definitely like it's a learned skill. Like there's 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 pattern recognition techniques and there's sort of, you know, things that you can do to sort of draw uh, one experience and like pull it into another. I always say like one of the biggest things that an entrepreneur uh, can learn is this pattern of associative thinking, right? Being able to say, hey, because this thing worked over here, what parts of it are applicable to over here? And that's cross industry, cross role, cross client, you know, cross product or, or whatever it happens to be. 
But it also helps in this circumstance, right, where you can see, hey, EVs are being adopted right now in a similar sort of trend pattern to, you know, let's say, um, you know, clean energy, right? And so, like, seeing the parallels and then also the differences between those two uh, and being able to articulate that well, I think it helps create a bed for the sort of experimental design we were talking about earlier in this call. Exactly. Yeah. EVs, we could go down that, you know, it's it's not just cars it's anything yeah. that's uh you know all transportation boats airplanes uh motorcycles uh jet skis everything is going to move in that direction yeah. and then all the industries that spin off of that right and so i definitely that envelope what i call the envelope of innovation and the adoption so that's, so you you had a it, through aspire saw how having that experimental approach really helped propel the company. And then you had an exit in that, right? So how did you decide to exit, right? Yeah. So we, I mean, for us, it wasn't like a, uh, it wasn't a very well thought out strategy, to be honest. It was sort of a circumstance that happened. So we have an investor, his name's Tom Rafa. He's an incredible human being. Um, He joined our company as an early stage investor, but then became, you know, one of our our strongest mentors. Um, he runs one of the larger accounting firms in the United States, um, specifically focused on nonprofits and uh, social enterprise uh, called Rafa PC. He um, was in the process of rolling up multiple companies that uh, were being acquired by a company called Markham, which is a very large accounting firm. And as we were going after our series B, he made an offer to have us be part of that roll up that was happening. It was definitely not part of the exit path or part of the exit strategy. And it's something that we've talked about, you know, in the past that like there's a, there is a lot more, I think, emphasis on the standard entrepreneurial path. Like you start a company, you do a beta program, you launch your product, oh, you, yeah. it, you do this stuff. But the reality of it is way more winding and sort of, so he approached us, we were choosing between raising yeah. our series A and B and getting acquired. And we chose to go down the path of being acquired. And so, um, yeah, we can talk more about that. It's, yeah, yeah, I do. I kind of want to, I, I kind of want to, because, you know, we're all, sort of um, indoctrinated to do the pitch deck in a certain way. And there's the exit slide and you identify who are your strategic exit partners or who you're going to, who you're going to be bought by. Uh, Did you have that in your original pitch deck? Absolutely. And And so obviously it went sideways from there, right? Yeah. I mean, I don't think, and now it's funny, like, so now I'm part of this group called K street capital that looks at early stage investments and we see hundreds of these pitch decks every quarter and they all have the same sort of strategy where they kind of talk about this, you know, hockey stick growth that leads to an exit. And I, I, I would, I would be amazed if any of those early stage startups accurately predict what their exit looks like, you know, beyond just the general idea of we'll get acquired by another company or we'll IPO or whatever it happens to be. Um, you know, our exit slide talked about being acquired by a strategic buyer at the very beginning. And I guess that was technically true. Um, but the way that we got there was not at all planned out. Um, and I think it's interesting because like consolidation is a very real part of how industries evolve and grow. Talking about electric vehicles, right? And how electric vehicles started off as this like early innovation. They became something that became, you know, like an early adopter idea. But as companies started growing and building things, bigger players came in, consolidated them, applied more economies of scale to these different, dif- different product lines. And then move the market together, you know? And so acquisition is part of that process, you know? And it's like a traditional part of how an industry grows. It's really hard to predict how that's gonna happen unless there's a very strong trend that you're building a business around, right? You can sort of imagine right now what's happening with 
Web3 or what's happening with sort of like very early stage yeah. blockchain. We'll go through a similar sort of moment, right? But predicting how and why and where. Yeah, you, you can't you can't predict it. But so, so with that, though, you can't predict it. But one of the questions I was like to I, I kind of want to f- ask a, a also is how important was like the relationships that you built in the companies? You know, you know, how much time did you spend building relationships or how much or did they just happen to they just naturally occur? Right. Yeah, I I think that I think that they naturally occurred, but also it was a very big focus of our organization. I mean, especially so our business was very much like we had vendors who fulfilled the services that we were providing for the HR technology company and our current business, which is a development shop, is all client facing. And so um, so, you know, part of the nature of the job is to be uh, building relationships um, in any sort of sales function, which most tech companies kind of have, um, you know, there is this relationship building component to it. Um, I think the thing that's most interesting about that is that it's uh, it's very hard to quantify how useful that is for the company, but it's almost always more useful than you think it is. And so emphasizing that has never let us down a wrong path. Um, the connection with, with our acquirer was definitely a random happenstance. The connection with most of our employees were random happenstances. Our investor meetings, you know, were all sort of introductions. Our current clients are all introductions from someone that we know. And so I've never found anything wrong with uh, spending extra time uh, doing doing more relationship building. Um, I think in particular, um, there's such a small cadre of people who do exactly what you do as an entrepreneur. You know, there's, you know, there's many entrepreneurs in the world, right? But there's very few HR technology entrepreneurs in Washington, D.C. who are building a mid-sized company with X number of people or whatever, right? And so identifying people like that, it's a different form of, I, I say mentorship, but it's almost like peer mentorship, right? By finding a, a group of people who are where you're at right now, I think these relationships naturally form. And so you know, we did some sort of standard um, things like we had an advisory board that we brought people onto for startups. And, you know, we had open office hours and we went to events and did all the traditional things that pre-pandemic a lot of startups used to do. And, but, uh, but, you know, it's, my dad has this idea that I really like of the surface area of luck. He's like, there's certain people who get luckier than others or certain people who find opportunities more than others. And you know, that person, you're almost like, oh, that person seems to always get lucky. But there's sort of this surface area of luck that surrounds someone, right? The person who uh, works solely on their, you know, their idea is maybe a smaller version of that surface area of luck. But you increase that surface area by going to conferences, going to events, doing the opportunistic things yep. that sort of lead to random happenstance. And similar to your logo, right? It seems like that's how a lot of these entrepreneurial journeys go, you know? Um, so, yeah, we could we could have a whole nother show on that topic alone. Yeah. Uh, I sometimes use the moniker uh, armchair sociologist and it's simply the more relationships you have with people that like know and trust you then that's that's luck right yeah. because they're going to have conversations uh, the other way i say it is it's not it's not what you know it's who you know it's not even what who you know it's who knows you and most importantly who knows you and talks nice things about you when you're not in the room Right. That's the that's the surface of luck. And you can only get that last conversation, that last sort of spokesperson, advocate, fan when you have when they trust you and they know who you are. And that doesn't occur with just going and handing a business card or exchanging a LinkedIn address at a random meeting. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I think I think one of the things that I think, you know, it it often comes off as uh 
you know, when people try and go down this path of meeting new people or creating these opportunities, I think there's a very genuine way to do it. And then there's a very, you know, ingenuine way to do it. And I think mostly like if you dedicate a portion of your life as a startup founder or as a, um, you know, even as a, you know, a member of a startup to helping people and just going out there and trying to figure out a way to genuinely just provide value to as many people as you can, that community that you participate in, you know, the universe provides, you know, there's a way that that will come back in some way, but doing it without that in mind and trying to connect all the dots together, I think is the most important part. Um, the, the most rewarding relationships that I have or the most rewarding kind of like, you know, even business opportunities that have come out of this all happen in a way that you would never have expected. Right. And so at a certain point, you just stop trying to expect them, right? And you just sort of, you sort of throw out whatever you can to the universe and uh, be as good of a person as you can and see what comes back. Uh, I love that. Yeah, when you when you force the universe, it doesn't seem to like it. Yeah, right. <laughs> Mother nature has a way of uh, making things right. So, so let's now move forward after you sold Aspire to uh, Rafa. Yeah. And now you have your own business, uh, Think Nimble. Yep. How did that come about? Yeah. Um, so after we got acquired by Rafa, which was going through this roll-up with Markham, you know, we were part of a fairly large accounting firm. I believe it was the 11th largest accounting firm in the United States, um, although that may not be totally accurate. Fact check that number. Um, <laughs> but it, uh, it uh, you know, it was just a very different environment. And it, it is the end goal of many entrepreneurs to get acquired. But I think that we sort of just assume that that is the end of the journey. But then there's this other part that happens, right? Where you're part of the parent company and you have to sort of make the thing that you created continue to survive without you. And that also is a skill and a very real part of the entrepreneurial journey. Um, so while we were there, our company was effectively running on autopilot. We had sort of built out the product, the service, the clients to the point where they were able to sustain themselves. And our sales team was just so, uh, so much, uh, the, the Markham team was so much stronger at sending out sales than we were. They had such relationships, they had such connections, such distribution networks, they could cross sell our product to anyone that they, they wanted to. And so, you know, we were kind of, our, the, our engineer's effort was not being used as directly towards growing the businesses it had when we were on our own. And so, you know, in a way that was a great success, right? But for a lot of us, we just started to feel a little bit bored and a little bit antsy. So, <laughs> I so could just we, see all these engineers sitting around uh, right. twiddling their thumbs or, or playing War of War, right, exactly. Warcraft. <laughs> exactly, right. So we, uh, so we approached actually the, the CEO of, of uh, this group, uh, his name's Tom, like I mentioned, and we said, hey, we've got this group of really talented engineers you have a, you know, an accounting firm that needs to find business. A lot of these accounting firms like Deloitte, Accenture, they have a labs program where they'll put together a group of engineers and have them work on what would normally be non-profitable or non-billable projects um, for equity or for some sort of relationship um, with the hope that these early stage ideas would grow into a business venture that could eventually become a client of yours. And so, you know, we've got all this excess capacity. We don't want to lose these really talented people. Let's apply these to problems that are just before where you need them to be to be able to work with them. And he said, great. So we put together this labs program and um, we worked with super early stage companies because I think we were a group of, you know, very human developers who also had gone through the entrepreneurial process ourselves. Um, we, we did code for a lot of these folks, right? But it was more about the wrapper around the code, helping them, you know, build the first version of their pitch deck define that hypothesis model that right, we were talking right. about before, all of that, right? And so we found these early companies and we worked with them for about a year and a half. And it was the most fun job that many of us have had. And so 
we, at the end of our tenure at Markham, we, uh, we talked to the CEO of Rafa about spinning it off and making it into its own entity and with a referral relationship and sort of the structure in place. And that's how we did it. So we were able to skip, you know, we started that company with a group of, you know, engineers, group of product man managers, um, a healthy bed of revenue from the, from the work that we had done through them. And that's what became Think Nimble. And so we're the same company we were then. We just aren't owned by Rafa Markham now. Yeah, I, I really like, though, that, you know, the environment that you were in, the, the board, the people had an entrepreneurial mindset to begin with, right? Yeah. When you said, here's, here's some talented people, we, we were doing this, what do you see? And they said, go for it, right? Yeah. So a lot has to do with that. Um, the environment you found yourself in, um, I think if the environment had been, uh, uh, the investor had been hammering on you day in and day out and knuckling you down, you, you would no. have a different story. But the, with them having a, an expansive view of the world, they gave you an opportunity. Is yeah. that a fair way to say it? I think so. Yeah, I think that's great. I mean, I think that like, you know, in the moment when you look at these things, I think you sometimes don't realize that amazing gift that you've been given by having this free open world as an entrepreneur. Um, you know, you sort of see, you know, I think different entrepreneurs or different investors, but in aggregate, I think that was definitely true. Like, I think that there was this really amazing environment that our developers were brought up in and our clients were brought up in, right. That allowed us to create this. Um, so that was about five years ago and we've been doing this work um, ever since. And I will say, the thing that's interesting that I've learned from this journey is that, you know, we did the high growth tech startup, right? Um, we did the venture backed HR tech company and um, we did the nonprofit, right? And all of these are forms of entrepreneurship. And so now this is a service-based business. We like don't take out any outside capital. We have 37 developers. That's our only expense, right? We have an office space and then everything else is just the money that we bring in and the money that we spend. It's a very traditional service-based business. And you know, I think we talked about this in our pre-call. It's funny because a lot of these entrepreneurial education organizations or accelerators or incubators, they focus on the venture path a lot. And they talk about this idea of going through high growth and venture capital and running a beta program and selling your company. Um, right. But, you know, 95% of the entrepreneurs who are out there are building a different sort of business, a nonprofit, a dental office, a restaurant, a service-based business, right? And they don't fall into that mold. And so I've just really appreciated this business for me is like exactly the type of lifestyle that I want to live, what I talked about before with right. my dad, right? I really love this sort of work. And uh, and I, I don't think I would have realized that early on in my career because it wasn't a clear option that was given to me, you know? And so, um, yeah, it's been really fun. Yeah, I really like that you, you've you identified that. There's this message out in Silicon Valley that the only, you know, the word entrepreneur must be equated with the billion dollar unicorn, right? That, that, and, and that isn't true. Uh, it, there's so many businesses and uh, small businesses that are doing lots of different things and niches yeah. that will never be huge niches, but are vitally important to our, our network. And so, and they need automation. We're only going to have more and more computers and more and more AI and machine learning or robotics and all that. Yeah. And they need a solution to help their business uh, thrive and grow. Uh, certainly they can have a one, two, five, 10, 20, $50 million company, but they're not going to be the billion dollar. And absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's an important thing when you're starting your entrepreneurial journey to ask yourself that question to sort of say, you know, I, I want to build a business and, but I'm not going to, I'm not going to like 
you know, I'm, I'm not going to live in the industry that I work in. I'm not going to live in the role that I work in. There's a lifestyle and a personality of the business that I'm about to start. And that's what I'm going to live in every single day. So what is that lifestyle going to be like? What is that personality going to be like? And is that something that I'm happy with? Because, I mean, I find a lot of entrepreneurs, they sort of, they're, they're sort of entrepreneurs searching for a problem, right? They come to it. They're like, I want to start a business. Now let me go out and identify a ton of different problems that I could solve and figure out what's the best business opportunity. And I think that's valid in a lot of ways, right? But there's also this other thing, which is that for the next eight years of your life, you will be digging into that every single day with the people you surround yourself with. So you have to like it, you know? And so you may choose not as great of a financial upside so that you could have a better work-life balance or a better problem sure. that you're trying to solve or something that's more meaningful to you. And I think that's a really real and powerful part of the entrepreneurial process. Yeah, I, I certainly agree. That's part of it. We and it's a journey, right? You don't know uh, when you're fresh out of college, you don't know what's really super important to yourself. Yeah. And, and you have to, you know, kiss a lot of toads to figure out <laughs> where's, where's the prince or princess or what's the job you want to wake up to every day. Yeah. And perfect. So with, uh, you talked about uh, Think Nimble, you focus on helping startups. Uh, how do they, you know, and you have a framework that you're following. How does that work? Yeah, so we, um, the, the general principle is exactly what you said. So we've got a ton of developers and product managers. We find companies that are the first, second, or third stage of their, their entrepreneurial journey, and we help grow them from, typically it's usually like an angel or a seed stage to a series A or a series B stage. And we start off usually by just being coders and builders. Then we usually hire engineers. Then we offboard ourselves and kind of set up a product process along the way. Um, and um, the, um, the philosophy that we follow is really one that like technology is not the hard part of a lot of what we do. Um, coding is like often the easy part of building a software application. The reason they call it software application is because you're applying software to a human problem and the human problem is the hard thing to figure out. And so, you know, oftentimes there's this idea that technology is this like black box, you know, so many people approach us and they're like, I'm not a technical person, I'm not a technical <laughs> founder, I just need you to build the thing, right? And, you know, it never works like that. The truth is like, in order to be a good developer, you have to understand the context in which you're building in those hypotheses that we talked about, you know, also define the development process. So, um, you know, our theory is that if we hire extremely entrepreneurial developers who have often built businesses themselves. Three of our developers right now are working on a business actively while working with us. Um, they sort of get the pressures of running a startup and they can apply the right pressure at the right time to the product so they can build something that's actually, that's actually truly useful. So our tagline is that we don't build apps, we build businesses because we help companies use the technology to solve those human problems. Um, and there's a, there's a whole lot I can talk about with that, but yeah, you know, this, yeah. this isn't a tech podcast, so I don't want to necessarily <laughs> yeah, but, that. <laughs> but so with that... Um, let me ask the, the, the last question. And then yep. um, with all the things that you've done, what would you have wished you would have told your younger self? Ah, there you go. Uh, I like that question a lot. Um, and I, I, you know, it, I, I mentioned how we started our journey by going out and asking all these entrepreneurs that same question. And uh, so I think about that. I think that for me, the, biggest thing that I wish I would have realized early in my career was that entrepreneurship is like you said, it's not a moment in time. It really is this journey. Right. And, and as part of that, it's, it sort of demystifies the whole thing, right? Because you don't need to know 
how to be an overnight success in order to be an entrepreneur. That would be a ridiculous order and like a crazy idea. And some people are able to do it, right? But as you're starting your journey, you shouldn't hold yourself to that expectation. Rather, it's like going through any other industry where you start off in an entry-level job, you know, you learn some skills, you take it to your next job, you learn some skills, you take it to your next job. Most people who are entrepreneurs that I know and admire and respect will be entrepreneurs for the rest of their lives in some form or fashion, right? And so because of that, right, they are always learning, always growing, always adapting. And it's way more of this trend line than it is just like this moment, you know? And so um, I like thinking about that a lot is like, all we have to do is to think about the next like, you know, six, 12, 18 months, right? And try to do the best we can at that time. And a huge part of that is having an attitude of learning and kind of seeing what worked and what didn't work in the previous six, 12, 18 months, right? So you can apply it to there. So I think it's that entrepreneurship is a journey. It's not a moment in time. So don't hold yourself to this idea that you have to like make it work in a year. You have a whole lifetime to be able to figure it out. Absolutely. I, I fully believe that entrepreneurship is a mindset and a journey. Um, the only other thing I will, uh, what do you think to the idea that um, you can't ever compare your journey to another entrepreneur's journey? I like that too. I, right. I think that's true. I think it's true in life in general, right? We all are. Uh, there's so much context and circumstance to who we are, what I do and what you do are going to be fundamentally different no matter what. So we should just appreciate that reality rather than trying to force it. Yeah, perfect. It's been an absolute pleasure talking with you today, Neil. Uh, how does the audience get in touch with you? Yeah, so there's a couple of things. So if you want to email me, my email is neil, N-E-I-L, at thinknimble.com. Also, if you are a non-technical founder and you are looking for some tech advice, we have this program. I'll, I'll do a shameless plug right now. Oh, absolutely. Called, Please do. <laughs> called, uh, called Office Hours, um, where, you know, there's this idea for a lot of entrepreneurs where they want to talk to a technologist, but instead they end up finding people who give them technical, like startup advice, or, you know, they find a developer who's trying to sell them services. And so what we do is this training program for our developers. We have uh, these things called Office Hours. You can go on our website and sign up. We do them every week. And all of our developers volunteer time to sit down with early stage entrepreneurs and go through one very deep technical question. So we ask you to propose the question, they research the question, and then they give you a thoughtful answer. Um, so it shouldn't be, how do I build an app? It should be something like, hey, I'm choosing between these four blockchains, which one is the best one given these criteria? And our developers can go off and research it. But we find that that's extremely helpful to early stage entrepreneurs and uh, it could be a good thing. So just go to our website, thinknimble.com and you can click on labs and click on office hours and sign up for one of our things. And I go to most of those. So I'll, I'll meet you there if you want to join. That's great. That's a wonderful offer. So a lot of startups are always struggling. They never have enough bandwidth and you can tap into the expertise of uh, your 37 programmers. Wonderful. Thank you, Neil. Been a pleasure. This is great, Philip. I appreciate you having me on. Take care. Oh, so that was the, I uh, hope you enjoyed the show. Please share it with another entrepreneur so they too can shorten their journey. Leave a five-star review. I'm Philip Topham, the savvy founder, wishing you a bright and profitable future in both your personal and business lives. Take care. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed the show. Be sure to subscribe and check out our website for tips, thesavvyfounder.com. You can also follow Philip on Clubhouse at The Savvy Founder, wishing you a profitable and bright future. Safe journeys. See you next week.